Thank you, Dale. Well, good morning, Seabreeze. It's good to see everyone this morning. I also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. By the way, on the Christmas Eve service, they had their first uh, rehearsal on Wednesday night, and my wife and I got a chance to come by and see, and uh, it's going to be amazing. I mean, you see some of these lights up here. We've got some other spotlights, so, I mean, just it's going to be pretty visually amazing. So hopefully you can join us at 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. Before I get into the message uh, today, I want to just give you an update on the um, upcoming construction project that we're planning for here at Seabreeze. Uh, many of you know that this fall we took the better part of five weeks to uh, collectively talk about and pray about what God uh, might want us as individuals to give to this project we're calling Next Move, uh, to give both initially this year and then also over the next three years. Uh, our goal was to raise $2.5 million. And that would allow us to construct a new kids' building over this location, over Center Court here, which is the largest piece remaining in the uh, master plan for this site. And so if you were with us, you knew that um, in one, I'll just say one of the great miracles that I get a chance to see personally, we got a chance to be a part of personally, God led us to not just give $2.5 million, but right now the pledge amount is $3.7 million uh, over the next three years. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. And then uh, so far, even, of the $3.7 million that's been pledged over the next three years, $933,000 has already been given uh, towards that $3.7 million. So it's just uh, amazing stuff. By the way, if you are um, planning to or going to be giving to the Next Move uh, campaign, we've got special envelopes that say Next Move on them, so you can put any checks in those envelopes. That way we're really clear on what you're designating this particular gift for. These envelopes are on the, the kind of the big wooden kiosks. There's one uh, behind us here, and there's one over there uh, on the patio. So you can use those if you're giving here on campus. We also still have the regular offering envelopes if you're giving regular offering. If you give online, uh, there's a clear way for you to indicate whether you're giving to this next move or whether you're giving to uh, the regular offering. So on the, the project itself, the project is right now out for bid. The subcontractors are bidding on that. And so I would ask you to continue to pray that we get good pricing on this, that the pricing matches or actually is below the estimates that we've been working off of. And that will allow us to do more than just the kids building. Uh, we've already raised more, so our hope is to do more toward the completion of the master plan uh, than just the kids building. It looks like uh, construction, again, we thought it might start in December. Now it looks like it might be January. And whenever that occurs, our plan at this point is to stay outside so that we can gather uh, as safely as we can in this current, current COVID environment. So our plan is to move, we can't meet here because this is the construction site once construction starts. So our plan is to move up to the patio, which is under the, the big ellipse. So we've done some planning. We think that'll be a pretty good space for us to meet, weather permitting. So we're going to be, be doing that sometime in January. So just be praying about all of these different moves as we uh, head into the future. Now, let's focus our attention on today's message. We are talking about a light in the darkness in this Darker than normal year, as we wrap this year up, we're fixing our gaze on the great light that entered this world 2,000 years ago, and that was in the birth of Jesus Christ. And that event was prophesied by Isaiah 3,000 years ago. Here's what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. 
And then four verses later, in the same chapter of Isaiah, we're told some more specifics about how this light is going to arrive into the world. This is what it says in verse 6 of Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the child the prophet is speaking of, of course, is Jesus Christ. He is the great light. We are the people living in the land of the shadow of death. And in these shadow lands, we are very familiar with the effects of the shadow, the effects of confusion and human frailty and isolation and injustice. But in Jesus, we are told that we find the answer to these four common problems in these shadow lands. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the answer to our confusion because of that. The answer to our weakness is the mighty God. The answer to our isolation is the everlasting Father. The answer to injustice is the Prince of Peace. Today we turn our attention to the third description given in Isaiah 9 verse 6, and that is the everlasting Father. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not himself the everlasting Father. So why does the prophecy say that this child, who will be Jesus, is called everlasting Father? Well, just before these four names are given, there is a statement that explains the context in which these four names arrive. The statement is this. It says, and the government will be on his shoulders, and then it goes on to say, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So what does it mean for the government to be on the shoulders of Jesus Christ? Well, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but let me review. We experience this every time we elect a president. The president is one person one name. But the election of a president is not just about one person. It's about a new direction of the government. And on the shoulders of the elected president rests the government that he brings in, his administration, with more names than just his name. And so Jesus is one person, but his birth brings to earth an entire new way for us to access the governing powers of the three in one God. Jesus often referred to his government as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So 2,000 years ago, a child was born. His name was Jesus Christ. And on his shoulders came the entire governing power of God the Father, God the Son, who was Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. So what this is saying is if we bow to Jesus, to use my election analogy, if we select him as our leader, if we vote for him, if we elect him and, and we follow him, that decision brings with it the entire government, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we now can call the everlasting Father our Father because of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean for the everlasting Father to be our Father? That's what we're going to look at this morning. When our kids were young, we bought a portrait studio from one of the local studios. It was a package where I think it was 10 sittings for a pretty good price. So every year we'd get dressed, and we'd get dressed up, and we'd head down to the studio for that next year's family portrait. And a few years after our kids had grown and, and moved out of the house, we got a notification from this studio that we had, in fact, one more sitting left. One more portrait left. And so it was just my wife and I were trying to figure out, you know, what, what should we do with that setting? So as a joke, I told my wife, Rebecca, that what I'd always wanted 
was just a self-portrait, just of me, kind of hanging in the hall. Now, whenever I said that, I mean, we couldn't stop laughing at the thought of how ridiculous that would be. I mean, the thought of a portrait of me hanging next to all the portraits of our family, it, was, it would have, I mean, it actually would have been pretty funny to do just to get a response and see what people would say. And the reason me, as, a, as an individual, just a self-portrait would be ridiculous is because I'm a father. You can't really understand me as a father without the presence of my children. Now, I say that because it's a similar thing with the Heavenly Father. It wasn't until Jesus, the Son of God, took on a body, came to earth, that moment we got a chance to learn a whole lot more about what it means for God to call himself Father because we got to see and hear and now read about the interaction between God the Son and God the Father. Therefore, we have much more understanding about what it means for God to call himself Father. You know, if you listen to God the Father and God the Son interact in the New Testament, you'll notice a dominant reoccurring theme. And the theme is the focus of almost everything that Jesus does and everything he says is to do the will of the Father. This is repeated over and over again by Jesus. I'm here to do the will of my Father who sent me. So why is the will of the Father so important, such a dominant theme? Well, let me ask you fathers a question. Why is your will important as it relates to your family? Why does it matter what you think and what you are wanting to happen with your family? Well, the reason that's important is because what you want is what's best for your kids. That's what your will reflects. You want to do what's best for your kids. The problem, of course, with children is they don't always know what's best for them. That doesn't diminish their confidence about what they think they know about what's best for them, but they just don't know. And so it's very important, especially when the kids are young, that the will of the father and honestly the mother really directs the raising of the kids because the kids just don't know what's best for them. Now, there's a similar dynamic at play with the everlasting father. He knows what's best for us. Now, he's not like us earthly fathers, doing the best we can, honestly sometimes really not knowing what's best because we're weak, we're flawed, we're not perfect. But the eternal father, the everlasting father, knows exactly. He is the everlasting father. And so the father's will, God the father's will, forms the outline of the best possible life we can live. His will isn't just, hey, here's another thought on what you might do. His will are, is actually like the borderlines of what determines whether we're going to live a great life or a more painful life. His will establishes the best possible life that we can live. But, of course, we are like rebellious children. We think we know what's best for us. And therefore, we run off in all directions, kind of doing whatever we want. Now, this morning, I want to look at two scenes from the life of Jesus where Jesus refers to the will of his Father. And in these two scenes, we, we get a glimpse into how the everlasting Father responds to humanity as we go running off in all of our different directions apart from his will. The first scene describes the fact that the everlasting Father pursues us. This is the first point in your outline. The everlasting Father pursues us. Like any loving father, Whenever the child goes off on their own deal, he 
doesn't just say, oh, well, I tried. He does everything he can to pursue that child. We see this in the first scene that I want to describe. It's found in the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 4. In this scene, Jesus is resting in a well. He's waiting for his disciples who went into the town to get some food. And a woman comes to get water from the well, and he strikes up a conversation with this woman, which is very unusual, actually not approved of in this culture. Not just because he was a man or woman, that was partly it, but because he was of Jewish descent and she was Samaritan, and the two really didn't talk with each other. And so when the disciples returned, they're shocked to see Jesus talking with a Samaritan woman. They wait for the conversation to be over. She eventually leaves to go back to her town. And the disciples then tell Jesus that he needs to eat something. I don't know if they're implying that he must be weak and therefore not making good decisions, but that's what they say. You, you need to eat something, Jesus. And so here's what we, we read in John 4:34. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's speaking of his father. Now, Jesus is using hunger to make a point. What he's saying is doing the will of the Father is essential. It's like eating food. For us, food is not really optional. If we're going to survive, it's essential. And just as our bodies hunger for food, our soul hungers for purpose. Not just any purpose, but our one true purpose. What is our one true purpose? Well, in the words of Jesus, Our food is to do the will of the Father. This is not just something unique for Jesus. Jesus is saying, this is not only what I am doing. This is, I'm setting you an example. This is the food that you need. Everybody needs to do the will of the Father. That's food for their souls. Every lesser purpose is like eating spiritual junk food. Junk food for our souls. Like junk food, it it may taste really good initially may be very attractive initially, but eventually it leaves us empty on the inside. And over time, it actually causes a lot of long-term problems for us. This year, a lot of what we do has been taken away from us. In isolation, we have been, I think, less distracted by some of the stuff that used to keep our minds busy and filled us with at least some sense of purpose. This year, some of us were even called non-essential. I think all of this has been a great opportunity, because I think what's been true for the most part of our culture is we have pursued so many lesser purposes, usually. We're so busy in pursuit of all kinds of things that the big question that, that is deep in our soul doesn't really get the chance to bubble up to the surface. But now, in this environment, we get a chance to have this purpose bubble up, this question bubble up to the surface. And the question is, why are we here? If we're non-essential and we can't do some of the things we used to enjoy doing, what are we supposed to be doing? What, What is our purpose? And I think this year really has been a tremendous invitation by the Father to set aside some of our spiritual junk food, to rethink our wills in light of his will, and to give ourselves, maybe for the first time, maybe in a renewed way, to do the will of the Father. Now, the woman describes her conversation with Jesus this way. In John 4, 28, we see this. Then, leaving her water jar, which means she was intending to come back, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, 
Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, of course, the conversation didn't go on that long. There's no way Jesus could have told her everything she ever did. But what she's saying is, Jesus knows some things about my life that I haven't told anybody. He's made some comments that give me an indication that he must be God or he's got access to some special information. Now, remember, Jesus is doing the will of the Father here. He's saying what the Father wants him to say. So for this woman to say, Jesus knows everything I've ever done, the implication is the Father knows everything that this woman has ever done. And what this means is the Father has been watching in great detail over this woman's life. The reason is because this is what fathers do. It's why I know more about my kids than you do. I have been watching over them in great detail for their entire lives. It's why you know more about your kids than I do. Just think of the detailed watching and planning by the father that needed to occur for this conversation to take place. I mean, this is a precisely timed encounter. For Jesus to arrive at that well, from what we can tell, this is the only time he was in this location in the 33 years here he was on earth. So for him to arrive at this time, and for her to arrive at this time, this was not the normal time when people went to the well to get water. She was coming at an unusual time. Most people think it's because she's had a kind of a tainted background, and she's embarrassed, and so she doesn't want to be talked about at the well, and so she comes at a different time. But for Jesus and her to arrive at the same time, that's pretty precise planning. And then Jesus brings up her sordid past by asking her about her husband. This is what she's talking about, because it turns out the woman had gone through five men, five husbands, in search of the love and purpose that she was created for. And the everlasting father has been watching her go through every one of those. You can't just say you've been married five times without beginning to understand the desperation and the pain and the hurt that's represented in just that simple statement. She's been married five times. Well, she, again, came to the well at this time to try to avoid this conversation, and now Jesus brings it up, her past, again. So she tries to divert the conversation and Jesus' attention away from her past, And she does so by bringing up one of the big debates that were going on right then between the Samaritans and the Jews. I mean, we do this sometimes. If the conversation gets in an area that's maybe a little too personal, we don't want to talk about, we know what to bring up in order to take the conversation off the rails. I mean, this year, all you have to do is talk about COVID, and immediately everything goes to that, and it doesn't really, no one remembers what we were talking about. Well, this is kind of the the hot-button topic of the day. And so she brings up this debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the debate was, where should God be worshipped? The Jews said it should be in Jerusalem. The Samaritans said, no, it's not supposed to be in Jerusalem. It's somewhere else. So there was a big uh, disagreement and debate. So she was hoping that Jesus would get drawn into this debate. But here's what Jesus says in response to her attempt to throw him off the trail. John 4, 23. Jesus says, yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. He brings the whole conversation back to God's individual pursuit of her, the Father's individual pursuit of her and everyone. Now, when we see the word worship, we primarily think 
that it's about singing to God. Well, that's a part of it. We just sang to God. We sang words and music of worship to God. But worship is much more than just singing. At its essence, worship is about putting God at the very center of our lives, putting His will as the primary focus of our lives. That's what it means to worship. And the problem, of course, is that, well, we want to be worshiped. We want to be at the center. We want our will to be done more than His will to be done. And we also oftentimes want to worship other things more than God. We want to put something other than God at the center of our life and organize ourselves around that goal. And that sets our will against God the Father's will. So what does the everlasting Father do in response to all of our false gods that we worship? Well, he does what any loving Father would do. At a moment of his choosing, he shifts from just watching and pursuing us, and he steps into our path to confront us. He puts us in a position where we can't ignore him any longer. We have to make a decision. We have to either say yes to him or we have to say no to him. We have to pick between him and the other objects of our worship. Now, the everlasting Father doesn't confront us visually. That would, well, that would overpower us. And worship must be freely given, so he will not overpower us. What he does is he usually confronts us in the circumstances of our daily life. He sees to it that our false gods fail us. And this occurs in the, just the routine of daily life. This woman was just going to get water. She had no idea that this was the day that the everlasting Father was going to confront her. To her, that just looked like another day among many days. She'd come to this well many times before. But it was on this day that the Father decided to confront her. Now remember, Jesus is doing the will of the Father, so it was the Father who initiated this conversation. Jesus is the one who was doing the talking, but the Father was the one who initiated this. Now, as I said, Jesus talked with her for a while, and then he finally gets to the big confrontation and asks her about her husband. And she says, oh, I'm not married. And Jesus agrees that she's not married and brings up the fact that she has, in fact, been married five times before. And then Jesus points out that the guy that she is living with now, in fact, is not her husband. Ouch. Suddenly, you can just sense the conversation got really awkward. Is the father, through Jesus, just trying to make her feel bad about her past? No, I'm sure the people in the town had done that many times. No, the father is trying to free her from her past, not make her feel bad about it. Now, the details of every confrontation is different, but they all end up with the same big question. Will you let go of your false gods and worship me, the Father, instead? What the Father is really asking in these moments of confrontation is, will you let go of your sad life and exchange it for a life of purpose and joy? That's what he's asking. Now, whenever God confronts the things that we worship, it can get pretty emotional. Because the things that we worship, even if they're failing us, we have deep attachments to, and we feel very strongly about these things. And whenever the Father confronts us on these things, there's a big risk and a high likelihood that we'll just get mad. And we'll just bolt, and we'll run off away from the Father. And that's our choice. 
But the Father keeps taking these risks. The reason is because without the confrontation, we will never turn back to God. So, the everlasting Father, at a time of His choosing, again and again, confronts us. And every time we say no to the Father, our hearts get a little harder, and usually along with it, our lives get a little harder. And every time we say yes, our hearts get a little softer towards God. Well, this woman decided to say yes to the Father. That's why she left the jar at the well. She wanted to bring the town people now to hear what Jesus was offering. She was finally ready to stop worshiping men, really, as her God, and to start worshiping the one true God. Now, this story is not about something unique and odd that the Everlasting Father did once 2,000 years ago. This is a behind-the-scenes look at what He is always doing. The Father is pursuing us. He is watching at a detailed level everything about our lives. And He is weaving those details into moments of choice where we have to face Him and say yes or say no. He knows that our false gods are not worthy of worship, and he wants us to know this. One of the amazing things to me about this story is the evidence of how patient the father is. When did this confrontation come? After this woman had gone through five marriages. Now, even in these days, that's a lot. But back then, this was an incredible thing. And we don't know exactly how all of the marriages ended. Maybe some of her husbands died, but the implication is these seems to be moral choices. We just don't know for sure. So much so that now the guy that she's living with, she's not married to. Again, this is pretty unheard of in this time. So what strikes me on this is that I bet her family had probably given up on her by this time. But God the Father did not. This occurred after five husbands. This is how patient the Father is with us. This is how loving He is towards us. He never looks at us and says, you know what? I'm done. He keeps pursuing. The second scene points to the second fact that I want to talk about this morning, and that is the everlasting Father gives us a family. He gives us a family. This scene, the second scene, is found in Matthew chapter 12. Let me read it in verse 46 through 50. It says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. He replied to them, so Jesus said to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, his followers, he said, here are, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, there it is again, is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus was not trying to snub his mother or brothers and say that they really didn't matter and family, earthly families don't really matter. That's not what he's saying. In fact, on the cross, when Jesus was dying that long and torturous death, he only said seven things, and everything he said was painfully spoken. And one of the seven things he said was to make arrangements to take care of his mother. 
So Jesus is not saying family doesn't matter, it's unimportant. He's making a point here, a different point. Jesus is pointing to the kind of family that is the best answer to the two main challenges that every earthly family faces. Every earthly family faces two big challenges. The first challenge is they're temporary because they're earthly families. They're temporary in nature. So every family is going to be affected by sin. It's going to crack, and, and the relationships are going to become tense at some point because of sin. And eventually, every family is going to be pulled apart by the experience of death. So every earthly family is temporary. The second challenge every earthly family faces is that they have a capacity limit. They're limited. Family is a very exclusive club. It's just parents and kids. You can be friends of a family, but your family with your parents and kids. That's it. Now, this exclusivity is really a good thing because it allows for the special focus and attention and love that we really need and really want. But it comes with a cost. And the cost is a lot of people are left out in the cold. They're not apart for their whole life of this kind of experience. You know, Christmas is one of those times in our culture where we get nostalgic about family. You know, we wish for and we imagine a close and loving family. But the reality is that not many people get to experience a warm and loving family. Now, if your family is the Hallmark Christmas movie kind of family, well, that's great. That's a gift from God. Enjoy that. But what if your family is broken? What if it's not? What if conflict has divided your family? What if distance has kept you away from family? What if death has hit your family? Well, the pain of that isolation is particularly painful, especially in this season when the family expectations are really high. And this is why Jesus brought us the opportunity to be adopted into his family. In this scene, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of people on the inside of this building and a crowd of people, it sounds like, on the outside of the building. People are clamoring to see Jesus, to hear Jesus, and mostly to be healed by Jesus. And so his mother and brothers come up on this crowd, and there's just no way they can break through the crowd. But then someone must have asked who they were, and they found out, well, this is Jesus' mother, and these are his brothers. And so the crowd parted. Word went to the front of the line. And all these people who have been waiting for all this time seem to accept the reality like, oh, well, his mothers and brothers are here, so we should let them through first. Why? Well, that's the exclusive nature of family. If you're family, you go to the front of the line. You are more important because you're a part of family. And again, as I said, that's a good thing. But what if you're left out of the cold? Well, there is a family that's available to us that is not temporary, and it's not limited because the father of this family is everlasting. And it's exclusive, not because of the things that you have no control over, like the family you're born into. It's exclusive because of a choice that we all make, and that is to do the will of the father 
who leads this family. That's how we experience the exclusive nature of this everlasting family. As Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's how we join. That's how we experience this family. I've got two brothers and a sister, and I love them. But they live a long ways away. They live in Canada, and I live here. And so I don't get to see them very much, especially this year with the borders being closed. And over the years, as we've all grown into adulthood, the four of us, well, we've all changed. That just happens in every family. And so whenever we gather now as a family, we do have a lot of fun. But something else goes on. The older we get, the number of topics that we've learned that we can't talk about seems to be growing. There's just more things that represent our differences in areas that are just landmines that we've learned as a family. If we're going to have a good time, we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about this. Again, I love my family. I have a great time with them. But there's some things that are really close to my heart that are not close to their hearts. This is what Jesus is referring to. What he's saying is the bond that comes with doing the will of the Father together is the deepest family bond there is. Now, none of us, of course, do the will of the Father perfectly. But you know, we, and by we I mean the people in this church, we have really helped each other get back on track. I know I've helped several of you get back on track, and I know you've helped me get back on track. And we have sacrificed over the years to do God's will, both in some really good and exciting times and some really hard and scary times. And you know what that means? You are my brothers and sisters, and I'm your brother. And that is a deep bond, even deeper than earthly families. Early on in this pandemic, we heard the phrase, we are in this together. That was intended to kind of help us feel less alone, but it was spoken by celebrities who don't know us. My first thought when I started hearing those is like, I don't have your cell number. If I need something, I don't even know where to call. And even if I tried to call your publicist, I'm sure I'd never get through. So really this we're in this together thing, while partly true, was mostly a sentiment. It wasn't real. But this, this thing called church, this is real. And because it's real, it takes time to build, just like any family does. You can't just show up on a particular Sunday and just feel like family. Maybe you can feel a little bit of it, but not deeply. But what happens is, over time, if you band together with a group of people like this to really do the will of the Father, you will experience the bond that Jesus is talking about here. God's family is built as we band together in the context of church to do the will of the Father. Then we experience the great joy and the great comfort of not being alone in this life. So in this week of Christmas, I am grateful for a lot. I'm grateful for my family. 
I'm grateful for my wife, my two kids, their two spouses. I'm grateful for my five grandkids. But I am so grateful for this family that I've had the privilege of being a part of. This is a joy that runs deep. If you don't know of this joy, as we turn the page to a new year in a few weeks, I encourage you to make 2021 about doing the will of the Father together in a place like this. Let's pray. Father, we, while it's hard for us to have words to express our gratitude in all of your greatness, that you would, first of all, even consider us in the level of detail that you do and that you would pursue and seek after us and that you would, in the middle of the details of our life, you would embed moments of confrontation, moments where you invited us to say yes or no to you. We thank you for your pursuit of us. And we thank you for banding us together in the context of church so that we might be brothers and sisters together. We might be family. We pray for those in this community around us who are alone right now. Father, we ask that you would pursue them, draw them to yourself, and then draw them to your family. Help us to be a part of that. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.